ora, I'm Alexia Russell and welcome to the Details Long Read. It's one in-depth story read by us every weekend. This week, it's A Clean Sweep, written by Kate Evans and published in NZ Geographic magazine's February 2023 issue. You can find the entire article with photos from Richard Robinson on nzgo.com. It explores the fraught subject of bottom trawling. Every year, New Zealand vessels drag trawl gear across nearly 100,000 square kilometres of our sea floor. We are the only nation still trawling in the South Pacific. This is an abridged version of A Clean Sweep. The 27-metre Sanford trawler Tengawai steams away from Auckland and out through the Colville Channel, the narrow stretch between Aotea, Great Barrier and the tip of the Coromandel. In the wheelhouse, skipper Bert Aitken is scanning his instruments. He's looking for bottom-feeding snapper on the sounder, choosing his line. The deckhands, Mike Jones and Matanaro Ben, are out preparing the trawl gear in their white gumboots and fluoro hard hats. Like Aitken, they're sheer fishermen, only getting paid for what they catch. The cod end lands in the water first, a beige multi-million dollar trade secret composite material sack dubbed the Precision Seafood Harvester or PSH. Part of it, the selectivity section, has small rectangular holes and it floats at the surface while the rest of the net, made of traditional mesh, unspools with a hydraulic hiss. Next come the bridles and the sweeps, green ropes as thick as my wrist, designed to keep the net open and to scare the fish into its gaping mouth. Finally, Jones and Ben release the trawl doors, which drag the net to the bottom and stretch it wide. They sink out of sight with a dull clank. Three hours later, we're halfway up the eastern side of Aotea and still towing. Beneath me and away behind, the weighted net and those heavy metal doors scrape the seabed. I picture the fish inside, herded together, still swimming. The sun has dipped behind Aotea when the crew start reeling in. First the wires, then the doors, the sweeps, the net. A dozen mollymawks are wheeling with interest. The dangling orange bird scarers seem to keep them away from the wires, though one steals a fish from the rising net. Tails and fins and eyes peek out from some of the little windows in the selectivity section as it's wound onto the net roller. Finally, the fat, featureless bag of the cod end rises out of the sea. Ben positions it over three stainless steel baths and tugs on a rope to release the opening. A foaming tonne of sea life and water tumbles out, drenching him and leaving many hundreds of fish leaping and squirming in the troughs. Jones and Ben sort through the catch as fast as they can. There are heaps of snapper, jack mackerel with iridescent pale bellies, Mau Mau and Disney Princess Pink, a long, thin, frost fish, unnaturally shiny like polished silver, tarakihi, trevally, a few big kingfish. They're not all alive, but most of them are. That's the thing about this cod end. They look like they've been caught on the rod, Jones says. Though it's not as easy to work with, he adds, as a snapper flaps in his bearded face. Traditional cod ends, he explains, jam the fish together. They get tired. The lactic acid in their bodies soars sky high, and they're generally dead by the time they're brought up on deck. 
Theoretically, the design of this new net allows undersized fish to escape at depth and the rest to keep on swimming until the last possible moment. Fillets from fish caught this way are better quality due to the lack of stress, firmer in texture and translucent. The men measure the fish against marks on the aluminium. Most fish go down the chute into the ice-filled hold. Too small and they biff them back into the ocean. Not all of the little snapper evaded the net. Some scarper while others swim drunkenly and are snapped up by the waiting mollymorks. Bycatch species like skates and starfish go over the side too. The deckhands are keeping a mental tally. When they return to the wheelhouse, they enter the catch on the government forms. There are 25 bins of snapper, about 575 kilograms. Three bins of trevally. Some other mixed fish and an estimated 175 individual, undersized and bycatch creatures chucked over the side. Not bad for three hours, says Aitken. He points to the map on one of the computer screens. A tangled rainbow of overlapping lines marks the trawls the same boat has towed over the past few years. There must be a hundred of them, at least. In total, he says, that tow has probably been done thousands of times. How can we have wrecked everything if we're still catching fish? Globally, a quarter of all fish and shellfish landed are caught by bottom trawling or dredging, dragging a small net with a toothed bar along the seabed. In New Zealand, these methods are even more prevalent. In the 2020-2021 fishing year, more than two-thirds of the total catch by volume came from within one metre of the seabed and was hoovered up by bottom trawlers. But bottom trawling takes more than fish. It's not completely indiscriminate. Skippers can tweak what they catch by choosing where to tow and changing aspects of the gear setup, such as the height of the net's opening, the length of the ropes or the width of the doors. But every tow catches animals the fishers can't sell or would rather not catch. In some fisheries, unwanted species are harder to avoid. For every kilo of scampi caught by trawling, 3.8 kilograms of bycatch is dragged aboard as well. In contrast, fishing for southern blue whiting, oreo and jack mackerel is much more targeted. For each kilo caught, there are just 10 grams of bycatch. Sonar devices now fitted to the net scare off whales and dolphins most of the time. In 2019-2020, fisheries observers present on around one in five New Zealand trawlers recorded just two dolphins accidentally caught by trawling. However, when observers are on board, they consistently record more bycatch than is self-reported by fishers. Bottom trawling and dredging also harm sensitive seafloor ecosystems, especially the first time. It's a case of the first cut is the deepest, says Simon Thrush, a marine ecologist who spent three decades studying the impact of fishing on the seafloor and now heads the University of Auckland's Institute of Marine Research. Most vulnerable are areas populated by living structures, such as corals, sponges or shellfish, which provide crucial sanctuaries for young fish to hide from predators and rest out of the current. Between 2018 and 2021, New Zealand commercial deepwater fishers reported catching 275 tonnes of sponges, slow-growing, water-filtering animals, which can live for hundreds 
even thousands of years. Offshore, these habitats are often found on seamounts. Niwa scientists using underwater cameras found that as few as 10 deepwater trawls on a small seamount can reduce coral cover from 20% to zero. And the harm is long-lasting. Dredging in the Firth of Thames in the mid-20th century completely destroyed its rich mussel beds and they have never recovered. Offshore on the Chatham Rise, between the South Island and the Chatham Islands, Two decades of studies have shown that 20 years after intensive trawling stopped on the gothically named seamount Morgue, coral ecosystems are only just beginning to recover. But all forms of food production have some kind of environmental impact, and the annual trawl footprint is reducing, with just 2-3% to of our nation's exclusive economic zone trawled each year, compared with the 40% of our land used for farming. Still, we don't trawl the exact same areas each year, and because the impacts are long-lasting, the effects can add up. Research by Fisheries New Zealand indicates that at least one-third of the country's fishable area, unprotected waters shallower than 1,600 metres, was contacted by bottom trawling between 1989 and 2019. And even more was probably trawled before 1989 when data collection was poor. Now, government, industry and conservation organisations are again debating the future of bottom trawling and dredging, with several consultation processes underway. The big questions. Are existing protections enough to allow both conservation and sustainable utilisation? Should bottom trawling and dredging be further restricted to certain areas? Can gear innovations solve some of these intractable problems? Or should the methods be phased out entirely? In December 2007, scientists from Crop and Food Research, which is now Plant and Food Research, were in the Cook Strait, trying to solve a hulky quality problem. They dropped a handline over the side of the research vessel hundreds of metres down to where the hawkey were and pulled one up onto the deck. Unlike traditional trawl court hawkey, which come up bruised and battered with pink flesh, this one was in perfect condition. The fillets cut from its body were clear and translucent. That was the aha moment that led to the precision seafood harvester, says Greg Johansson, who at the time was Sanford's deepwater fleet manager, but is now an independent consultant and the interim chair of the PSH programme. If you could replicate that kind of quality with a trawl net, you could turn a low-value product into a high-value one, maximise the economic return from each tow and each fish, and hopefully pick up other benefits, such as reducing the mortality of unintended catch and persuading consumers that trawling is a sustainable option. By 2012, the plan was underway. Three seafood companies, Sanford, Sea Lord Group and Moana New Zealand, committed $26 million to the project in cash and vessel time, and the government matched it. The regulators had conditions. The Fisheries Act strictly prescribes what equipment can be used for trawling. Fisheries New Zealand, tasked with drawing up a bespoke approval framework, decided the new gear would need to be 
no worse than traditional trawlers when it came to sustainability. We thought that would be a no-brainer, says Johansson. Reality was more complicated. No worse in what way? The new criteria included impact on protected species and the seafloor, the number of undersized fish caught, the mortality of fish that are landed and discarded, and the amount of target fish caught per tow, affecting how much of the seabed must be contacted for a given catch. But the ocean is a tricky place to do research. Fish behave in complex and species-specific ways, and figuring out how to test the PSH and traditional trawl methods against these criteria proved difficult. In one study, for instance, the new net did let more undersized tarakihi swim free, but it caught fewer of the target species, barracuda. Snapper posed a particular paradox. The PSH was designed to keep water flowing inside the net at a speed the fish can keep up with, so they stay relaxed and energetic over the hours the net is dragged along. But because of the way snapper school, juveniles tended to swim happily in the centre of the net, surrounded by larger fish and ignoring the escape holes designed to release them. Testing different prototypes, the PSH team was able to change how fast the water moved in the net, fatiguing the smaller snapper and encouraging more of them to swim out the holes. But those that did stay in the net got so tired, they were more likely to die after capture. Both these measures also proved difficult to quantify. The final design, approved by the government and now in use by Tingawai and other inshore vessels, was a compromise. It's thought to land slightly more undersized snapper than conventional trawl nets, but with slightly higher catch rates and much lower mortality of unwanted fish, at least for the 48 hours after they return to the sea. It certainly improved the condition the fish are landed in, increasing commercial returns by 30% for both snapper and hockey. I asked Tingawai skipper Aitken if he thought the new net had reduced the catch of juvenile fish. Maybe, he said, depends where you tow. Johansson maintains the current iteration of the PSH is just the start, a game-changing proof-of-concept with far more potential. He'd hoped to trial various innovative ideas, such as altering the hole shapes and positions or using different colours and sounds to scare certain species out of the net. None were progressed because the team was tied up with meeting the government criteria necessary for approval, he says. The PSH programme always had a deadline of 2019. By then, 22% of the three companies' hockey quota was being caught with the new gear, and trials had begun in a flatfish fishery in the Netherlands. In September 2022, on the advice of independent consultants, the government released an extra $9.4 million that the team had been allocated but hadn't spent. Now they can finish the job. Over the next three years, with that extra cash in hand, Johansson's team will test more designs. One early-stage project involves a sensor on the net they hope will be able to detect unusual, large or warm-blooded animals. Heaven forbid if you had a Maui or Hector's dolphin in there, you could open the back end and everything could swim away, Johansson says. Still, for all its sort of precision and future potential, a huge amount of public money was spent on a system that does little to address trawling's benthic impacts, the effects on the sea floor. 
Raywin Pert from the Environmental Defence Society points out they completely ignored the biggest environmental threat, bottom contact. Offshore, the undersea landscape is just as topographically varied as the mainland. Trenches and abysses fall away into the deep, while rocky hills and volcanoes, seamounts, rise from the silty ocean floor. These features generate currents that keep the seawater clean, says Niwa's Malcolm Clark, who's been studying the impact of fisheries on seamounty things for 25 years. Importantly, they also provide solid structure for plants and animals to settle on, while lifting them within reach of migrating plankton, he says. Fish don't have to charge up into mid-water to chase their prey. They've basically got the food coming to them, he says. Together, that means those underwater hills and mountains can sometimes give rise to whole ecosystems. They also make many seamounts attractive places for fish and for fishing. In the past few decades, researchers have begun to explore these places and the life they support. It's becoming clear that just like mountains on land, the ecosystems on these pinnacles vary dramatically, even from slope to slope on a single seamount. Ashley Rowden, a fisheries scientist who works closely with Clark at Niwa, says some seamounts might play a significant ecological role, others less so, and we don't yet have the right tools to be totally sure. Furthermore, what counts as a seamount at all is disputed. It might sound a really trivial issue, but it's hugely important when it comes to politics, says Clark. Seamounts were first studied by geologists who defined so-called underwater topographic features above 1,000 metres as seamounts. Those between 250 and 999 metres were dubbed knolls, and between 100 and 249 metres, hills. The fishing industry prefers to restrict discussions of seamounts to the kilometre-high behemoths, of which, at last count, there are just 146 within New Zealand waters. That definition is really a hangover from the 1960s, explains Clark. It's arbitrary. It's not driven by any biological reasons, he says. If hills and knolls are included, and they should be, argues Clark, there are almost 2,000 seamounts. Ecological importance is not determined by height, he says, but by a jumble of factors, including depth from the surface, shape, the type of rock they're made of, and how far they are from other seamounts or the shore. Some of the most spectacular undersea forests of sponges and corals Clark has observed via Niwa's underwater camera surveys have been on small features such as ghoul, which rises just 100 metres or so above the sea floor. He sends me an image taken there, a tangled forest of bristly, branching, white and mustard coral with a delicate orange sea star perched on top. They're really quite special spots, he says, even though they're not classed by some people's definitions as seamounts and are therefore outside some of the proposed management regimes. For instance, in August 2022, Sea Lord released a white paper suggesting that bottom trawling be forever limited to 15 of the huge 1,000-metre-plus seamounts that have already been towed upon. The gesture, the company admits, will have a negligible effect on the operations of Sea Lord. 
Arguably, it's also unlikely to have much effect on conservation. The Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, a group of New Zealand environmental NGOs, is calling for bottom trawling to be banned on all seamounts above 100 metres, and cites surveys showing this is popular with the public. The tide is turning internationally too. Chile closed all its seamounts to bottom trawling in 2015, and Palau has banned it entirely. Is predictably pushing back, pointing out just how rich these fishing grounds are. Aaron Irving from the Deep Water Group, which is an industry body, says that 27% of the total Oreo and orange ruffy catch is caught on these features, almost entirely on the smaller hill-sized seamounts. Closing all of them, he says, could have a profound effect on the viability of the seafood industry. Orange ruffy, Oreos and especially cardinal fish like to feed on and above seamounts, but when avoiding fishing nets they dive down, meaning bottom contacting gear is necessary to catch them, according to Sanford's head of fishing, Colin Williams. That's just where the fish are. Several Niwa scientists confirm this, saying that when they tried to catch orange ruffy in midwater, catch rates were unviably low, even when the fish formed dense plumes. Ruffy are especially good at shimmying out from beneath the net. Clark says bottom trawling is a necessary method for some species. Still, fishers don't like trawling on rocky ground or spiky corals, Williams says. It wrecks the gear, so they tend to return to the patches they've already trawled smooth again and again. Fish still seem to hang out in these places, he says. It's in our interest to be accurate, he says, because if you fall off the edge of the track, then you're going to risk damaging expensive gear. If not all seamounts are rich, pristine environments, could we be smarter about which ones we fish on? Some hills are already protected. In 2001, the government closed to fishing 19 individual seamounts from different areas and depths, though the Niwa scientists involved admitted the selection was something of a stab in the dark, as so little was then known about their biodiversity. In 2007, the government accepted a fishing industry proposal to establish 17 benthic protection areas, totalling 1.2 million square kilometres, which are now closed to bottom contacting gear. NGOs point out that nearly three quarters of this territory is far deeper than trawlers can reach anyway, and much of the rest is away from the main fishing hotspots. In exchange for the deal, industry decreased its contribution to benthic research and the government agreed not to progress further marine protection in the exclusive economic zone until 2013. No new areas have been protected there since. But our data's improving all the time. We're learning about seamounts, ecological value and recovery rates. Meanwhile, new reporting requirements mean we also have more detail about where trawling is occurring. So are we protecting the right places? Clark, Rowden and other NIWA scientists have just developed a new database which should help fisheries managers to answer this question. Ultimately, Clark hopes it will bring together multiple data sets pertaining to seamounts. Things like underwater video footage, NIWA's trawl survey data, fisheries information plant and animal specimens in museum collections 
and sea surface temperature records. That was A Clean Sweep, written by Kate Evans and published in NZ Geographic magazine's February 2023 issue. The detailed long read is produced by Newsroom with support from the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Ka kite anō.